Hey everyone, this is Justin from Eerie Earfuls. For those that may be new, these episodes were originally released back in 2018, and we're re-releasing them until we catch up with our new stuff. With that said, you may be wondering why episode 7 is coming out before episode 6. In response to the murder of George Floyd, folks across the nation have amassed to once again protest police brutality and the persistent murder of black people by the police. And as happens every time the police are protested, law enforcement officers are responding with militarized gear and aggression, in many cases intentionally provoking otherwise peaceful protests. First, we wanted to make it clear that we at Erie Earfuls stand with the protesters and with black folks across the country. This is a shameful moment in U.S. history, but it has nothing to do with the actions of black people and everything to do with the actions of the police. Episode 7 isn't about police brutality, but we do discuss the concept of childhood innocence, whose is protected and whose isn't. It's not the focus of the entire episode, but it's an important discussion and relevant to current events. We wanted to share it in the hopes that we can help in some small way to educate white people about these issues and to boost the voices of black people. It's important that people in the white community do the work to listen and learn from black people, so even more than usual, we encourage you to read through our sources. In addition to our usual list of cited sources, we are sharing a list of incredibly informative books to help further educate you on the topic of race in America and how racism, particularly anti-black racism, continues to shape our country to this day. We are also sharing links to several activist causes that could use your donations. If you can't protest, and many can't for a variety of reasons, Donating to help those that can is always a good alternative. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Stay safe, stay healthy, end police brutality. Black Lives Matter. Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls, located in the Who Gives a Shit section of your memory warehouse. Every two weeks we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. Let's get to today's double feature. The person picking the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week was my pick, and I chose Needful Things and Something Wicked This Way Comes. Let's pop in the synopsis tape. Needful Things is a 1993 film written by W.D. Richter and directed by Fraser Clark Heston. A mysterious proprietor named Leland Gaunt arrives in the small town of Castle Rock, Maine and opens a new antique store called Needful Things. The store sells various items of great personal worth to the residents. Gaunt demands payment both in cash and in small favors, usually pranks played by his customers on their neighbors. Gaunt's first customer is a boy named Brian Rusk, who buys a rare baseball card featuring Mickey Mantle in exchange for 95 cents and a prank on his neighbor, Wilma Jerzyk, throwing muck from her turkey farm on her sheets. Nettie Cobb buys a small statue that is identical to the one her violent ex-husband smashed in a fit of rage. In return, she goes to Danforth Buster Keaton's house and places tickets covered in taunts allegedly from Deputy Norris Ridgwick all around the interior. Gaunt has someone kill Nettie's dog in exchange for a jacket like he wore in high school, then forces Brian to break all of Wilma's windows with apples like the ones Nettie uses for her apple pie. This sparks a violent fight between Nettie and Wilma, in which they kill each other. Brian, racked with guilt that his actions may have led to Nettie and Wilma's deaths, attempts to kill himself. Sheriff Alan Pangborn manages to save him, and Brian is hospitalized. Meanwhile, Pangborn begins to suspect that Gaunt may not be what he seems. He tries to warn his fiancée, Polly, but she purchased a pendant that cured her crippling arthritis and is unwilling to remove it. All of the pranks come to a head, and a riot breaks out, with Gaunt watching from the sidelines. Sheriff Pangborn tries desperately to restore order, exposing Gaunt's true nature and his web of lies and manipulations. But Buster, despondent after murdering his wife in a fit of rage, and with a bomb strapped to his chest, tackles Gaunt through the store window, setting off the bomb and destroying needful things. The film ends with Gaunt defeated but completely unharmed, emerging from the burning wreckage of his store and departing to continue his work elsewhere. Something Wicked This Way Comes is a 1983 American fantasy film directed by Jack Clayton and written by Ray Bradbury. Thirteen-year-old friends Will Holloway and Jim Nightshade meet a strange lightning salesman, Tom Fury, as he arrives in town ahead of a big storm coming. He convinces Jim to buy a lightning rod, which Jim puts up in anticipation of the storm. 
flyers scattered throughout the town announcing an arriving carnival, so that night, the boys sneak out to watch the carnival arrive at 3 in the morning. They follow the train over a hill, only to find that the carnival is already up and assembled, albeit eerily empty. They get spooked and hurry home, but upon investigating the next day, they're surprised at how normal everything appears. However, something sinister is happening upon closer inspection. Their 7th grade teacher, Miss Foley, is days after visiting the mirror maze. Mr. Tetley, the local cigar salesman, disappears on a ferris wheel after winning a large sum of money in a carnival game. Mr. Crossetti, the local barber, attends a belly dancing show and disappears after being surrounded by women. They sneak next into the carousel and run into Mr. Cougar and Mr. Dark. Mr. Dark tells them the ride is out of order and offers them passes to come back the next day when the carousel has been fixed. He seems especially focused on Jim. They sneak back later that night and witness Mr. Cougar riding backwards on the carousel, which ages him back to a child. They follow the young Mr. Cougar to Miss Foley's house where he pretends to be her nephew. Will tries to warn her, but Jim stops him. Miss Foley, using a mirror in her house, wishes for her youth, which she is granted, but then she is immediately struck blind. The next day, the boys run into a parade featuring all the people that are missing from the town. They realize the carnival is searching for them and hide in a storm drain. Will's dad, Mr. Holloway, spots them, but when Mr. Dark interrogates him, he feigns ignorance, giving Dark fake names. Mr. Dark sees through the deception and threatens him before leaving. That night, Will and Jim meet Mr. Holloway at the library where he has discovered that the carnival arrives once a generation and leaves in the midst of a giant storm. Mr. Dark appears and the boys hide in the book stacks. He discovers both of them and takes the boys back to the carnival, offering to make Jim a partner and treat him like a son. Mr. Holloway follows them to the carnival and into the mirror maze. He experiences flashbacks of when Will almost drowned, but the illusion is shattered when Will calls to his father and admits he loves him. They find Jim in the carousel and pull him from the ride just before it gets struck by lightning and kills Mr. Dark. The film ends with Will, Jim, and Mr. Holloway racing into town to touch the barber's pole, their sense of youthful joy restored. First, I want to welcome Brandon back. Um, he was gone from last episode, but his uh, his school stuff has cleared up, so we were able to jump basically right back, right back into doing things like we did. So welcome back, Brandon. <laughs> Yay! Hold your applause, please. <laughs> and um, if this week was your pick. You came back on your pick, so I wanted to ask you, why did you choose these two movies? Well, I thought these two movies would pair well together because the central idea is the same. A stranger comes into town and offers people things that they want in exchange for something, whether it be a task or a sacrifice or something like that. So I thought the two paired well together on that aspect. Yeah, I really like the sort of Twilight Zone nature to both of the movies. The sort of like, be careful what you wish for because you get it, but you might not get it the way that you want it, or you might get it at a cost sort of level. I thought that was a very fun connection between the two. Yeah, I agreed. I guess I didn't realize how similar they were until after I watched the two, and I was like, oh, wow. Honestly, I think that they might be very similar because the book Something Wicked This Way Comes came out in, I think, 1962, was written by Ray Bradbury, and he wrote the script mm -hmm. for the movie as well. And uh, the Needful Things book came out sometime... Yeah, I think it was in 91 or 92, and the movie came out in 93. Yeah, I think so. So I'm sure that Stephen King read, you know, Something Wicked This Way Comes and kind of wanted to do his own spin on it. Not to mention, uh, I did read that Stephen King apparently wrote a rejected adaptation of the Something Wicked This Way Comes movie script before Ray Bradbury uh, wrote it himself. So <laughs> That's funny because some of the reading that I did, the story actually started as the Black Ferris Wheel or something. It was like a Ray Bradbury short story. And Ray Bradbury wrote it into a script in, I think, 1956. And he wrote it with his friend Gene Kelly in mind to be like Gene Kelly's directorial debut. And Gene liked it and shopped it around to a bunch of the different studios. And no one really wanted to make it into a movie. So he was like, well, if no one wants to do it, then I'll do a novel. Honestly, I think that the most interesting thing about these two movies is just the, the similarities and the differences. Because as you said, they're very similar in concept. Mysterious man comes into town offering people their heart's desires. But the little differences in execution are, to me, what makes them very interesting to watch having watched them sort of back to back so for one thing both of the men come into town and they're both driving sort of like these sinister vehicles <laughs> <laughs> leland gaunt in the movie has this like black old school mercedes dark comes in in something wicked this way comes on this sinister black train 
<laughs> I actually enjoyed Something Wicked quite a deal more than I liked Needful Things. Uh, I felt like Something Wicked had more atmosphere, and I feel like the execution of it was better, even though it had flaws and was at times goofy. I felt like overall it felt like more of a movie to me, and maybe it's just because I haven't read the book, so I'm not familiar with the story. So I was able to watch the movie as a movie, but when I watched Needful Things, I've read the book, and so it felt like just a Cliff Notes version of the book. It was just a lot of, like, right. scene, 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 quick introduction, quick introduction, here's a thing, here's a thing, and it felt like the plot never stopped moving. It never slowed down to give anybody time to breathe or develop as characters, whereas Something Wicked... At times it had pacing problems, but it felt like those boys felt like real boys. Their dad had time to develop and felt like a real person. The townspeople were less developed than in Needful Things. They were just kind of sort of almost caricatures, but the main characters felt like real people. And I think that's another criticism I would level at Needful Things is that the movie sort of doesn't have a main character, almost, because yeah. it hops around to so many people. I mean, Alan is supposed to be the main character, but he doesn't take a lot of the narrative thrust for probably half the movie. I actually like Needful Things more than Something Wicked, and movie-wise, I think that Something Wicked is the better movie of the two. But in terms of enjoying it more, I enjoyed Needful Things a lot more. I mean, it is very much like a mile wide and an inch deep. Like, you don't get a lot of character development. It's more about, like, moving the plot forward because it's a pretty big book and there's a lot of things that happen in it and the things that people do to each other are very interwoven and they have to be timed a certain way, you know, so... It did feel like it should have been longer to let some characters breathe. But I felt like the Something Wicked had all of the right things. Like it had atmosphere and score and good source material. And, and they had pretty good actors in it. I just don't feel like any of those things to me were meshing together. There wasn't a consolidated vision for the whole project that somebody was constantly, you know, looking after. It just felt like there were things that were there that would have made the movie better had, you know, the original version actually been able to be released. But since it wasn't, then it just kind of, like, pfft, fell flat. They're supposed to be 13, but the actors didn't look 13 to me. They looked really no. young. Like, for some reason, I thought they were, like, 10. Yeah, they did. They're supposed to be almost 14 in the book, like, fixing to turn 14. And, yeah, in the movie, they did feel very young. But there was a couple of scenes. You could tell that the movie was delayed by almost a year. The, the final product wasn't satisfactory for Disney, and so they shove it to the side for like a year and shove Ray Bradbury and Jack Clayton and all of them to the side. And they're like, we're going to take it from here and brought in a new director and then a new editor. But anyway, that was my complaint was at least Needful Things Felt like a cohesive product, building towards something. It was like a string of firecrackers going off. It was like, it started, and then boom, 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 things happened, and then it ended. And I was like, that was a great movie! And Something Wicked felt like it had a message. I just didn't catch it, or it just what just none of that. It had all good things, they just didn't go well together. Like, they didn't mesh into this really satisfying product. And so, at the end, I was kind of like, okay. I, I felt the same way that I did when I watched it as a kid. I was like, well, that was kind of weird. And not really sure if I got it. Uh, there are a handful of parts that didn't work for me. The beginning narration feels very weird. Mm -hmm. um, in my notes, whenever I was taking notes, I actually wrote, we now return to a Halloween story. Because it felt like a Christmas story. And then it was like a little blonde, round-faced kid with glasses. <laughs> So the narration felt weird to me. Yeah, well, it was also added the yeah after the movie was like already done, they had him come back and rewrite that opening. I it, to me it felt exactly like Silver Bullet, in that the narration feels tacked on and mm -hmm. like so the whole point of the movie is that Will's dad is an older dad. He's like in his fifties, I think, is what he's supposed to be. He looks mm -hmm. like more like he's in the sixties, but right. he wants to be a younger man. And Will feels uncomfortable around him because he's so much older and kind of sterner. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have a great relationship. And it kind of implies that maybe part of that is because Will almost drowned and his dad couldn't save him because he was too old. But that was also like 10 years ago. If we're going by the fact <laughs> that they're almost 14, then when he says Will was four. So that was yeah. 10 years ago. He was 44. Anyway, point being... He's like an older dad, but at the end of the movie, after they go through the entire ordeal, he literally is sprinting with the kids to, like, touch that barbershop pole. There, he's, like, racing, and he feels young at heart again. So for them to come in with narration and be like, 
and he did feel younger again, and we had a much better relationship. And I was like, you did not need to explain this. I already got it, based on the fact that they are hugging and smiling. Narration is almost never the right choice. If you're having to verbally explain to your audience, and this means that we're all happy now, then you you have not done well. But that's also right. Disney's fault. Not that, like, It's not like Jack Clayton wanted to, like, put that in there disney was just like we need we need to explain it to them those were the only parts really that felt like they didn't work the rest of the movie to me feels pretty cohesive until the very ending whenever they pull jim off of the carousel then suddenly mr holloway is like what you gotta do is be happy you be happy damn it clap and dance and sing that's what they want they feed on fear I mean, like, they said that they fed on fear earlier, but, like, since when when has any of this been established? In the book, it makes sense. Because, so, in the book, in the scene in the library where Charlie is laying on the floor and the Dust Witch comes in and Mr. Dark says, I'm gonna have you experience death so that you can see it coming again. In the book, the entire point of that scene is she's literally killing him. And the way he defeats her is by laughing. Like, he suddenly finds it funny Mm -hmm. and he, like becomes sort of like euphoric and laughs and his joy kills her right and so that that's how he defeats the rest of the stuff like when he goes into the mirror maze after his son and jim and stuff and that that's how they defeat dark as they laugh and dark actually in the in the movie he gets stuck on the carousel and ages him forward until he's like ancient and the book he gets stuck on the carousel and he goes backwards until he's aged down to like a young child and he runs up to them and is begging for their help And then Mr. Holloway takes him in his arms and, like, hugs him and shows him, like, affection. And it kills him because he is a creature that eats hatred and pain. And this affection is too much for him and it kills him. But, like, because... Can't beat that forceful hugging. Yeah. (laughs) The most underused plot device ever. Forceful hugging. Essentially, you are bear-hugging them to death. You're just squeezing them until they're crushed. (laughs) But, like, that, the idea was supposed to be in the book. It's set up that, like, childlike joy and affection and love will defeat the evil. In the movie, that's not what happens. It's like lightning and your own dumbass machines will <laughs> defeat you. And then he's like, laugh, goddammit! And you're like, okay. <laughs> Jesus. Why are you so... And yeah. he's not He's not even like, wait, let's be joyful. <laughs> like he's, right. he's very intensely like, you gotta laugh. That's what they don't like. And mm-hmm. you're like, whoa. Yeah. Because it was the end of the movie. Like that was the whole point, the resolution of the movie. And it was so weird. I was just like, Meh. yeah, that's, I guess that's why I was more forgiving of the lack of character development in evil, in needful things. Uh, I remember you uh, talking about how the ending of the book was dumb and the ending of the movie Needful Things is also not great. (laughs) But at the same time, it made more sense after I read a difference between Needful Things and uh, the movie and the book. So in the book, these people do these things to other people that mean nothing to them. But the other person suspects it's like their enemy in the town. Mm-hmm. And and in the book, when it gets to that peak moment where they're like, I want revenge, I need revenge, he gives them weapons in exchange for their soul. And then he keeps yeah. their soul in a valise. And so at the, at the end of the book, Alan Pengborn is doing like this sleight of hand magic stuff. And it's, you know, like obviously not what he likes because it's like childhood innocence. And it doesn't really defeat Mr. Gaunt, but it does fend him back long enough for Alan to get the valise back and release the soul. Yeah. So that makes sense. In the movie, they don't do that. He doesn't take the souls, or if he does, they don't ever mention it. So it just kind of builds and builds and builds and builds and people die. And then Alan, like, talks all of the people down, and everybody's (laughs) like, oh yeah, I guess we are kind of shitty. And then that one guy's like, well, I killed my wife, and I've got a bomb, and then jumps on him, and then blows the thing up. The explosion is very cool, but at the same time, I was like, eh, it's still not a super satisfying ending. But at the same time, I'm not sure if there would be a really good satisfying ending that you could write. See, I didn't mind the ending of the movie necessarily, except that he explains too much. They, they already very heavy handed 
imply that he is the devil. Right. Like, to the point where the one guy goes, Jesus Christ, and he goes, oh, the young carpenter, he died poorly. Like, Whoa, okay, I get it. <laughs> He's the devil. But, like, at the end, when he, like, basically, like, slow claps his way out of the wreckage, and then it's like, Alan, Polly, your kid's gonna be great. Oh, can't wait to meet him in 2053. I've got big plans for him. And you're just like, right. shut up and leave. <laughs> like... Get out! This would have been so much more effective if you weren't, like, vaudevilling your way out. Like, In the book, which is, like, Stephen King's biggest problem is he has gigantic, epic ideas for a lot of his stories, but no idea how to wrap that up into a conclusion. So his stuff builds into this ridiculous, insane crescendo to the point where there's no way you can come back from that. It's the same problem with It, it's the same problem with Under the Dome, it's the same problem with Needful Things, where like it builds into this massive climax, and then you're like, and now I have to wrap this up somehow and make it a satisfying conclusion... Like, they kind of imply that maybe he's a low man, or maybe he's some sort of, like, elder god that's related to, like, the Dark Tower, like, one of those, like, outer gods mm-hmm. that that's, like, an enemy of the tower. And how do you stop that? <laughs> Stephen King's biggest theme is that childhood is innocent, and that friendship defeats everything. So, like... Alan uses, he he likes magic tricks and he does them throughout the book constantly. Even He even does it like idly, just like when he's thinking. And he uses magic tricks to hurt Leland Gaunt because everything that everyone does in the town is selfish. It is to gain something. And when he uses magic, magic is an inherently unselfish thing because it's illusions. It's literally entertainment. It's meant to bring joy to other people. You know how it works, but they don't. So when you flip the card and hide it wherever you're hiding it and it disappears from your hand, you are bringing someone wonder and joy in a very innocent form. So he starts doing magic tricks and then finishes with deploying this really old rickety bouquet that's supposed to like pop a bouquet into his hand. And it's an old cheesy cheap trick, but he does it. And instead of producing a regular like wilted paper bouquet, it produces this like bouquet of light that he's able to like shoot at Leland and and like knock him back long enough to, like you said, get the ballast and and release all the souls in the town. The point being that, like, childlike wonder and innocence and being unselfish is what saves the day. And in the movie, what saves the day is talking rationally. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so, you know, as you were explaining it, I was like, actually, I guess the ending of the book makes more sense than the one in the movie because he just starts talking people down. And I was like, talking people down. And then all of a sudden they're going to be like, oh, we're all really shitty. Oh, wait, we're assholes. Like they haven't (laughs) thought about that for three weeks. So let's just compare and contrast um, something wicked, the movie and needful things, the movie. For example, in the movie, in Needful Things, Leland Gaunt is very heavily implied to be the devil. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Mr. Dark, it's a little bit different because he's not the devil per se. He is evil like and definitely like an evil creature, like Mm -hmm. not human. But he's one of the autumn people, which is this sort of fictional race of night monsters that feed. They're they're almost like the boogeymen. Right. They like feed on your fears and your pain and your sadness. Yeah, I didn't think about that. And in terms of like trading something for something else in Needful Things, everybody is getting something in exchange for like a little money and a task. Like I said before, it doesn't mean anything to them because it's like, hey, go to this place and slash this guy's tires. And they're like, well, I don't really know that guy, but whatever. It's not really hurting me and it's not super hurting him. It starts off really small and almost not noticeable. And then, you know, it it just slowly builds into like, why don't you kill them? You know, whereas in something wicked, they don't get a choice. I mean, I don't really know if they get a choice in needful things, but it's it. It's the illusion that there is a choice, like you don't have to take it, but if you want it, I'll take a reduced price and you do me a favor. And in something wicked, it's just like, here's a thing that you've, yeah, here's a thing that you've always wanted. And they're like, oh, I do want that. And then something gets taken from them. So for example, like the elementary school teacher. It, they they make it a point at the beginning of the movie that she was at one time one of the most beautiful women in the town, yada, yada, yada. And there's a couple times where you see her like looking at herself in the mirror and or in a reflection and she's like, oh, you, you know, you can tell she has like a nostalgic look on her face like she wishes to be beautiful again. 
And so at one point she gets into like, you know, she looks in the mirror and she's like, I wish to be beautiful again. And they kind of grant her wish. And then she turns beautiful and she gets to enjoy it for about five seconds. And then she goes blind. She's the only one that has sort of like an EC Comics twist to her story, really. The Needful Things, they are getting something. Right. It's never, it's not like an abstract concept. It's not like I'm younger, necessarily. It's always something right. first. A like, desirable um, object. The only person who has like an abstract concept, Polly's thing is, I don't want to hurt anymore. <laughs> and so she gets a trinket that cures her arthritis. But even then, like, even though the actual thing that she's getting is relief from pain, what she is physically getting is she's getting a trinket and nobody in something wicked gets a thing. Right. It's all like a wish granted. Like, and, but she is the only one that gets the sort of like twilight zone tales from the crypt esque twist of haha you got it and now you look pretty but you'll never get to look at yourself which is what you really <laughs> wanted was to look at yourself and see you were beautiful right everyone else like um mr tetley all just wanted to win a bunch of money and he wins money at a carnival finally wins uh wins a carnival game and he'd wanted to win like a hundred thousand dollars in the lottery but instead he got a thousand dollars but he was like freaking out about it and then he gets on the ferris wheel and he just disappears and then later they see him and he's dressed up uh in like a like a native american because he? he sells cigars, and the, the Native American statue outside of his store was, like, the oh. brand of cigar. Oh, I didn't even notice that. And then uh, Mr. Cressetti, I think is his I name. The barber. Yeah, the, like, the horn dog. Mm-hmm. He, he, he just really wants women. Yeah. And then he goes to, like, the belly dancing thing. And then later, he's dressed up as a bearded lady. But, like, yeah. I, I guess that's it, ironic. That's a weird scene, speaking of, that of, like, for a kid's movie. I was like, this is a little weird. The, the belly dancing scene? Yes. Yeah, man. That was almost like an woo. orgy. Yeah, and I was like, what is this? It was just as bad as when Jim and Will are running away and they see that guillotine and it goes down and it's <laughs> like one of the kids gets decapitated and they see it. And I was like, what the fuck? One of the key differences I noticed between Needful Things and Something Wicked as far as like the deal that they make with their prospective devil is that in Needful Things, like you were saying... They get something, but they have to not only pay, but they have to do something. There is a task they get assigned as well. And so, like, the message of that story, to a point, is kind of, what will you do to get what you want? Because they could say no. Like, it's not like they they get the product, and then later he's like, actually, you gotta do this thing. Like, he, he tells them, uh, I'll give it to you, but you gotta do me a favor, also. <laughs> right. Just a prank. Whereas in Something Wicked, the question is more like, what will you give up to get what you want? Yeah. The lady gives up her sight in order to become young. Uh, that one guy gives up sort of his autonomy to, bec- to gain his arm and leg back because he gets like de-aged into a kid. Mm-hmm. So now he kind of is at their whim. He's not an adult anymore. He can't fight them off. So in a way, he sort of gives up his autonomy to get that arm and leg back because he was self-sufficient. When he was missing an arm and leg, he was like running his own business, cleaning up his own stuff. Like he was totally good to go. Yep. But he he gave that up. Um, And then I guess careful, like in the ladies or you'll become a lady. (laughs) I don't know. And don't win money or you'll turn into a Native American. Those are the lessons I got from those guys. I literally don't know. When I got to that part, I was like, okay, what the fuck is going on? Like, what <laughs> is this movie that I'm watching? Because I... Those were, those were moments where I was like, this is weird. I feel like you should have spent a little more time explaining why they look like this. I mean, I get it. So I get it in like a meta sense, because in a meta sense, it's a carnival, and so each of them becomes sort of like right. a sideshow attraction. Mr. Tetley becomes uh, like a wooden, I guess, like a Native American statue or, or something, and so, like, that that's gonna attra- an attraction that will draw people in. And uh, Mr. Cressetti becomes a bearded lady, and bearded lady is a very, like, classic sideshow-type right. character. So, like, it, it, it makes sense, sort of, but also you're kind of like, but what did that have to do with what they wanted? Yeah, exactly. It took me a minute to kind of notice it, but I really liked that Pam Greer... Uh, her the dust witch is all of the women in the carnival in that sequence where they're in the carnival and then you see mr tetley he wins the the winnings and then he gets on the ferris wheel and she's just like sitting there waiting for him and they don't frame her necessarily as sinister you just kind of have to recognize her face 
And he's like, well, lucky me. I'm sitting next to this pretty lady and I just won all this money. And uh, Mr. Cressetti goes, I think it's Mr. Cressetti that goes to the fortune teller. And she's like, you want ladies? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I want ladies. <laughs> and it's Pam Greer. And then when he goes to the belly dancer show, it's her again yeah. as one of the belly dancers. I, I really liked that Like each time they interacted with a woman, it was her. Yeah. I, I, I liked that it made it feel very eerie and sort of um, dreamlike. Mm-hmm. Another reason that I thought these two movies paired well together was because they both uh, feature aspects of, like, the Faustian bargain. Like, the idea of the Devil's Pact probably dates back to, like, the 4th century. So that's not a super new or unique idea at all. But the particular capitalization of that idea and tying it to Faust has been a very strong connection because uh, that legend came about in like the 16th century. So as far as I know, Faust was a real person. Some It was somebody named Johann uh, George Faust, lived from like 1466 to 1541-ish. They're kind of unclear on both his birth and death dates. They're kind of unclear if it's even just one person because... It's possible that it could have been two people around the same time, one Johann Faust and one George Faust. But anyway, this person was supposed to be an an alchemist, astrologer, and a magician during the German Renaissance. So he was a kind of well-known person. And then after he died, I guess his personality got transformed into a legend. And it had been passed down after that as a legend for so long, it's almost impossible with the way records were kept to figure out which parts of his life were true and which parts are obviously legend. So the Faust legend is basically he uh, he was a very erudite man and was highly educated and was very successful, but he was always wishing for something more. He felt like he didn't have a very fulfilling life and he makes a deal with the devil and he gets worldly pleasures uh, by trading in his soul. And I think both versions, the deal is technically with the devil, but it is like contracted through one of the devil's like lackeys. And so they're almost always the agent of the devil or the demon is Mephistopheles. And he's always the one that like, you know, initiates the bargain or whatever. I guess the one of the earliest and most famous iterations of the Faust legend was made popular by Christopher Marlowe, and he published this it was like a novel that was the tragical history of Dr. Faustus. In that one, it's it's unique because it's not one, I guess, that people nowadays are super familiar with. Most people are familiar with a different later version of Faust. But this was the this one came out in like the 1500s, not too long after Faust, the actual person, supposedly real person, died. So not too long after he died, this story was published. And that's kind of why everything kind of blends together after that. So in this version, Faust is the one that suggests the wager with the demon, and he accepts. But at the end of the legend, Faust is unable to break the contract with the devil and is carried off by demons. But the most famous version of the Faust legend for me, and it's because I studied music, obviously, in college, is uh, Goethe's Faust. And that was written in like the 1800s, I think 1808, maybe? And it was hugely uh, influential, not only on like German literature and folklore and stuff, but just literature in general, because it was very popular and it inspired a lot of people, particularly music composers of the Romantic era, notably like Schubert, Beethoven, Berlioz, Brahms, Wagner. They were all in some way inspired by Goethe's Faust. But anyway, in Goethe's Faust... It's Mephistopheles that suggests the wager. So it's all on the part of the demon. It's not Faust being so cocky like, I bet you couldn't fulfill my wish. You know, it's more like Mephistopheles being like, I bet I could fulfill your wish. And if I can bring you a moment of happiness, then I get your soul. And Faust is like, deal, because obviously he doesn't believe that that's possible. And the story, I believe, takes place in two parts. And in the second part, he finally achieves this one brief moment of happiness after he's after they've like explored time and history and and classical figures and all this 
stuff. Uh, once they've explored all that, he uh, he experiences a brief moment of happiness and actually dies. And in that moment, Mephistopheles is like, yes, I get this bitch soul now, yeah! And then <laughs> doesn't get it, because, you know, deus ex machina, God just kind of comes in and is like, no, you know, he was he was actually pretty good the whole time, so we'll take him back. And Mephistopheles is like, no... He's mine. We had a deal. And then God was like, but I'm God. And then they take him back. So yeah, he doesn't get dragged off by demons in Goethe's Faust. As far as I know, he gets like saved and and well, he nice. still gets to go to heaven anyway. So it's a happy ending, which is weird for the romantic era, but whatever. Those two tales, it introduces the idea of the Faustian bargain in which a person surrenders uh, moral integrity in order to obtain like an object or power, or success, or a hidden desire, or something like that. Well, that's really interesting. I, I really dig the way that this sort of structure has, like, permeated throughout history. And yeah. there's so many different versions I of do, it. too. And I and I, I liked it because, you know, in, in both of those instances, it's just one person. And in these two interpretations of that story, the Faustian bargain, basically, it's like an entire group of people. It's like, how many people can they, you know, bring into this? Rather than just one really good person, they're like, I just want quantity over quality, I guess. <laughs> I like the two villains, you know, the people that they got to play them in Needful Things and Something Wicked. Obviously, the one in Needful Things is Max von Sydow, and he's a very famous yeah. actor. Doing his best Ian McKellen. Yes, exactly. Really. And uh, in Something Wicked, it was actually the, the Ray Bradbury had written that part of Mr. Dark for either Christopher Lee or Peter O'Toole. And, uh, Which makes sense. Right. And, and the studio was like, no, let's bring in somebody who's not very well known. So they brought in Jonathan Price, who's now a very famous actor. But at the time, he wasn't super well known in movies anyway. But I thought he did a great job. Because I think Jonathan I did Price too. is a great actor. I mean, I wish I could have seen the version of the movie where Christopher Lee is Mr. Dark, because I can't imagine the, like, I just can't imagine the, like, Christopher Lee performance. It would have been pants-wetting. But Jonathan Price did a really good job. He did. I, I kept thinking I had seen him in other things, but I think I've just seen other performances sort of inspired by him, mm -hmm. because he reminded me, performance-wise, of the guy from The Last Action Hero that had the, like, glass eye, mm -hmm. and he kind of reminded me of Loveless from Wild Wild West. Oh, yeah. The, the thing that I know him from is uh, he played the High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, which is funny because I believe in that same season or maybe the next season, they brought in Max von Sydow to play the Three-Eyed Raven. So <laughs> they're, they're both playing like these big roles, you know? One of the things that I, I think is a neat difference between Something Wicked and Needful Things is the, the, the choice of who the point of view character is because it colors the way the movie plays. Both movies feature a main character that sort of sees through the bad guy's illusions to a point. Mm -hmm. Needful Things, the point of view character is Alan Pangborn, the sheriff played by Ed Harris. And it's a different perspective than Something Wicked because Alan is an adult. So the way he is able to sort of see through the illusions of Leland Gaunt is that he's an outsider. So Leland's entire shtick is that he sells people things that they really need or really want. And then he plays on their petty squabbles, their small town bigotries and biases and prejudices. Mm -hmm. Alan isn't a part of that community, so he's not as easily swayed as everyone else. He's not as easily like taken. But because he's an outsider, he's able to bring this sort of objective perspective. Everyone else is like, well, yeah, of course, Nettie killed Wilma, Wilma killed Nettie, they hated each other. And he's the only one who's like, no, 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 that seems weird, right? Like, they haven't <laughs> killed each other yet, so why would they now? <laughs> Whereas in Something Wicked, the reason that Will is able to see through Mr. Dark's phantasmagoria is that he's a child, and children have this magical thinking, which means that they can be sort of, they believe in magic more, but also they're able to see through magic more. Like, they're, they're, they're innocent enough to be able to be like, oh, this, this magical carnival, but it can't be, but it is. Will, especially, is able to see through a lot of this stuff because he's kind of young and naive. He, um, he's still very innocent, 
and uh, has like a, a child's classical perspective on the world. Jim is clearly the one maturing slightly faster, and uh, Jim is the one who is clearly sort of maturing before Will, because Will doesn't have interest in peeking into the sexy lady dancing show, Mm -hmm. but Jim does. Jim, like, peeks through this little peephole, and he's actually the one that sees what happens to Mr. Cressetti, where he, like, suddenly is naked and surrounded by women. Jim is also the one that gets tempted by Mr. Dark, and to me, basically, it's sort of implying this perspective that children are innocent, And we become less innocent as we grow older because adults experience more of the world and that innocence gets shattered. A great example of a scene where Jim is clearly a little more world-wise than Will is when they go to uh, the the school teacher's house and they see that carnival worker who had been de-aged into a kid and she's like, this is my nephew. And Will says, uh, ma'am. I have to warn you, and then Jim, like, jumps in and interrupts him, and it's like, I just, uh, that he's gonna warn you that we have to go. Jim clearly sort of gets it faster than Will. Will Mm -hmm. sees through the illusion. Jim understands their sort of, like, sly thinking. Mm -hmm. But because of that, he's also the one who is like, I don't know, maybe I could join him. So all of the desires, both in Needful Things and in Something Wicked, that the evil men try to meet are sort of adult desires. Mr. Crissetti, lust. Mr. Tetley has this desire to be successful. I feel like Tetley's wasn't necessarily just lustful as much as it was status. Mm-hmm. Whereas Crissetti is just like, I want lady, I want sex. But then you've got Will's dad, Charlie. He's older and he wants youth again. He wants to be able to play with his son. And that's the kind of stuff that kids just aren't going to get. Like they haven't lived life enough to be beaten down right or to have not met like a lifelong dream as far as a 13 year old is concerned the world is their damn oyster (laughs) to an extent Mm -hmm. and they play with that idea somewhat in needful things as well whereas with will that innocence sort of keeps him from being corrupted he is able to sort of see through the illusions needful things everyone else that gets roped in is an adult their lure is tied to some sort of moment of joy usually from like childhood it it somehow links back to like a more innocent time for them where they're trying to recapture that nostalgic happiness that they had so it's like a doll from when you were a kid a jacket from when you were in high school the for for Nettie it's a porcelain figure which was sort of it implies like her only happiness Mm -hmm. in a terrible abusive marriage and for Polly it's a cure for constant crippling pain And it's not that no kids know that kind of stuff, because some kids are born with, like, unfortunate situations. But, generally, kids don't know, like, the pain of aging. Because arthritis is very much like an older aging Mm -hmm. disease most of the time. So, for Brian, the lure that he gets drawn in with is, here's this fancy baseball card. But for, for Leland Gott, that's sort of the worst deal he makes, because that baseball card is just a baseball card to Brian. Brian likes sports, and therefore he wants the card. But that doesn't have, like, this deep emotional tie of, like, when I was a kid, I got to see Mickey Mantle play, and this is me reliving my happiest moment. Right, but at the same time, he does mention that he used to collect baseball cards with his dad before his dad passed away, and that was the only one from the Yankees lineup that they were not able to get a hold of was the Mickey Mantle card. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, it's definitely linked to his dad, but that's it's not the same sort of, like, deep nostalgia that, like... All of the adults, it's sort of like recapturing some sort of youthful joy. Mm-hmm. For as with Brian, it's an emotional connection to his dad. Which is also, I think, why he tries to commit suicide. Because everyone else is older. They've gotten much better at rationalizing, I deserve this, because life sucks. Brian is young enough that he's like, oh, I did this thing wrong, and these people died for it. I'm a monster. And then he tries to kill himself for it. So that got me to thinking about um, childhood innocence in general, because childhood is innocent and kids are, are are not corruptible and it's only when we become adults and gross and wrinkly that we, that we become corrupted. <laughs> Some historians have posited that childhood in general is a modern concept in Western society and that's not really accurate because from records and from like the way we've treated kids throughout history and written records in Western society, it's pretty clear that adults understand that kids are a different thing than adults. Like some people have posited that kids were treated as many adults and that's not really true. But it's not entirely inaccurate either in that what childhood meant was a little bit different. 
this idea that kids were more innocent wasn't introduced until John Locke he was one of the earlier philosophers to sort of bring that concept into the into light because he basically thought of kids as tabula rasas. He had this idea that basically kids were blank slates that had to be taught how to be people, essentially. Like, kids come into the world and they know literally nothing. And then we have to sort of teach them how to walk. We have to teach them how to be moral. We have to teach them about God and religion because otherwise they could be easily tempted by these other things. So it's our job to teach kids their blank slates, which also means that they're kind of innocent. Um, One of the things he argued is that whipping and beating kids for not studying hard enough wasn't effective, that it was more effective to treat learning like a game and then kids would just naturally start soaking in those lessons without even realizing it because it's like disguised as fun for them. During the Enlightenment period and during the Romantic periods, the idea of childhood innocence became more developed. It wasn't just that kids needed to be taught things, but that that innocence should be protected. And that was sort of aided by this rise of the sort of wealthy middle class. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he sort of like picked up John Locke's philosophies and he even wrote, Why rob these innocents of the joy which pass so quickly? Why fill with bitterness the fleeting early days of childhood, days which no more return for them than for you? So this idea that like, remember when you were a kid? Remember how great that was? Don't fuck it up for them too. <laughs> that said, this idea that childhood is innocence has never entirely been true. It's it's only been an idea for wealthy people, for people that are more well-to-do. Because in basically every period of society, even when you have this idea that child, that kids should be innocent, you have kids that volunteer to go to war because they have to. Kids that drop out of school and start working because their families are poor and they need the money. The innocence of childhood is a privilege, basically, that only some people get. And this is especially true, it's especially a white privilege. Because, especially in, like, American countries, black people for a long time weren't even considered human. This idea that kids are innocent and that innocence needs to be protected is one that doesn't get passed on to children of color and especially black kids. I was reading uh, just, like, some different articles. Nicole Dennis-Ben wrote an article about the, the idea that innocence is privilege, and it's one reserved for white kids. She talks about how this was written in like 2016, this article, which I'll, I'll link to on our, on our site. This was in the wake of a lot of police shootings. And so she was talking about how black children are taught that they have to be twice as good as other kids. They have to go above and beyond, but they also have to be respectful, but that they still won't respect you enough. They still won't think of it as enough, mm-hmm. but you have to do that to get by. And that's this sort of toxic message that gets taught to black kids because it's essentially true. Black people are considered more rude regardless of their behavior. Studies have shown that they're considered louder regardless of how loud they're being. They're considered more disruptive. Black children are perceived as older than they actually are by white people. Black kids are often considered less innocent. And uh, the beginning of ta Coates' book, Between the World and Me, which I read a couple years ago, a lot of the book talks about the talk that black parents have with their children. And I've read several articles, especially back in 2016, uh, when a lot of those police shootings were sort of hitting the news, where uh, several articles by black folks where they talked about how white people don't have to have the talk with their kids the talk of what do you do when police stop you? Because for a white person, a police encounter is not necessarily going to go south. It's not a great situation. Like, a lot of white interactions with police aren't great. But black people in particular are taught from an early age, keep your hands on the wheel, yes sir, no sir, don't make any sudden movements, make sure that you've got your documentation easily reachable, don't like go for a cell phone in your pocket, make sure that that's out So uh, the beginning of Between the World and Me, it's within the first chapter. I think it's the first few pages. He says, I write to you in your 15th year. I am writing you because this was the year you saw Eric Garner choked to death for selling cigarettes. Because you know now that Renisha McBride was shot for seeking help. That John Crawford was shot down for browsing in a department store. And you know now, if you did not before, that police departments of your country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your body. It does not matter if the destruction is the result of an unfortunate overreaction. And the entire book is like a meditation on that. And it really highlights how white kids don't have to have this conversation. As I was doing research on the, the concept of childhood innocence, 
it was inescapable that that is a concept that's really only afforded to white kids. And it's, it's not insignificant that this town, both towns are overwhelmingly white and that the main characters are overwhelmingly white boys. Like that, that's an innocence that can really only be afforded to white boys. And I mean, it's still an interesting and thematic subject to talk about. And there's, there's like, it's not that everyone doesn't have nostalgia and think back to their more innocent times. Mm -hmm. It's just that this concept that innocence needs to be protected is uh, honestly sort of a very white concept. If you've heard any of our previous episodes, you know I almost always talk about a great score sets the tone for the film right off the bat and includes like some hidden gems that music people would be like, that's really awesome and is foreshadowing and stuff like that. So both of these scores do that. Uh, The score to Needful Things was written by Patrick Doyle. (laughs) I was trying to figure out why this, like, kind of unknown shitty movie from the 90s had this huge, like, epic score. And I was like, this score is awesome. Why is it so awesome? It's because Patrick Doyle, the person that did the score for Needful Things, collaborated a lot with Kenneth Branagh, who, you know, (laughs) he did Henry V, and Patrick Doyle did the score, and he did Hamlet, and Patrick Doyle did the score to Hamlet, and he also did the score to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and he also did the score to Murder on the Orient Express, and he also did the score to Thor. And so I was like, well, that explains why it's so portentous and uh, very grand. But um, one of my favorite clips from the Needful Things score is the opening cue which is called The Arrival. And obviously it's mimicking uh, the arrival of Leland Gaunt to Castle Rock. And it's also set to like these swooping camera shots that show somebody arriving. You know, it's like always on this journey and it's constantly arriving in Castle Rock. But um, that particular cue for the score is called The Arrival. But if you listen to it, there's a chorus accompanying the orchestra. It's like a big orchestra and then a chorus integrated with the orchestra. And they are actually singing words. They're not just oohs and ahs. Um, And the words that they're singing are Latin, and they're often singing Sanctus Dominus, and they're singing Kyrie Eleison and Christa Eleison. Sanctus Dominus is a style of chant or song that they would often use in Catholic masses in like the Middle Ages, close to the Renaissance era, maybe. It was very popular for them to be set to all different kinds of melodies and stuff. And often a sanctus hymn or chant that was performed in church was um, referred to as like a hymn of victory, which makes sense because, you know, uh, Leland Gaunt is about to like terrorize the shit out of this town. He's going to have his victory. And then there's the Kyrie Eliaison and Christe Eliaison, which means Lord have mercy on us, Christ have mercy on us. And those were also popular. Uh, everybody has written their own version of a Kyrie. A Kyrie is, is also an important part of a Catholic Mass. And uh, that obviously makes sense because that would be like from the point of view of the townspeople, I suppose, asking for forgiveness for their actions. But the most, uh, the, when it builds to its big climax moment, and it's, you know, it's like all the tension is ratcheting up. The text that they're singing is Dies Irae, which is Day of Wrath. It's also like Day of Reckoning. All of these things are, you know, incorporated in some way into a Catholic mass, but particularly a Dies Irae is incorporated into a Requiem. And a Requiem is a Catholic mass for the dead. And a lot of famous Requiems have been written by like Mozart and Brahms and Verdi. And um, what's what's particularly funny about this opening cue called The Arrival, in the way that it ratchets up the tension and incorporates these syncopated, jerky, choral motives with heavy percussion and stuff, it's very reminiscent of Verdi's Dies Irae from Verdi's Requiem. This is a day of reckoning, a day of wrath for Castle Rock. And there's, he also makes an interesting use, Patrick Doyle, uh, towards the end as it's building to a, a climax. He also makes an interesting use of the hemiola effect, which in music is when you have basically a three against two or two against three feeling. So most songs are, let's say they're in four, four time, which basically means there are four beats in a measure and each beat 
is a note, is a quarter note. And if you split that quarter note into two eighth notes, that means you get a beat and an offbeat per beat. Does that make sense? Am I making any sense right now? Like, bum, 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 yeah. Bum, bum, so you get like, bum, 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 bum. Like if you had one, two, three, four. Uh, if you split it up into eighth notes, it would be one and two and three and four and. And then it would be like putting three eighth notes in the space of one beat on top of two eighth notes already being there. So it would be like a triplet, which is what they call it, three three eighth notes on top of the two eighth notes that already exist there. So it's a very uh, jarring effect. It, I mean, it's, it's, it has a jerky feeling and it's syncopated, but also, it also is like it's driving the melody and the tension forward. A lot of times when those are used, it's to create more chaos within the score. But he doesn't use all of his own original score. He also uses clips from other famous scores, and they make sense within the context of the film. So, for example, there's a scene where Nettie is going into Buster's house. She's putting up all of these fake tickets everywhere that have, like, dumb things written on them. You know, he's supposed to suspect the deputy. And so she's sneaking around and putting up all these parking tickets. And as she's doing that, the uh, accompanying score is Edvard Grieg's In the Hall of the Mountain King, which you would know what it was. <laughs> you might not know the title In the Hall of the Mountain King, but you definitely know it because you've heard it in, I don't know how many commercials or movies or whatever. perfect for that moment because the melody is you know very sneaky and it's also very mischievous sounding which makes sense because within the context of the play that it was written for which is Peer Gint this is the moment in the play where Peer Gint is sneaking into the hall of the trolls and the trolls are singing about like what they're going to do to him and you know the trolls are gross and mischievous and and there's some sneaking involved because that's what she's doing then there's a completely different scene where Nettie confronts, what's her name, Wilma? And they, like, battle to the death. And instead of there being this, like, huge epic battle score, it is set to Schubert's arrangement of Ave Maria, because that song is absolutely beautiful. And it's, it's this very poignant prayer asking... Um, it's not right, because in... Okay, so... Side note, in the Catholic Church, you don't really pray to the Virgin Mary because it's weird and that's idolatry. You actually are asking her to put in a good word to Jesus on your behalf. So anyway, that's what Ave Maria is for. It's basically like a prayer, but not specifically to Maria, but saying, hey, can you please uh, ask Jesus uh, to forgive me. The text is a prayer seeking forgiveness at the time of a death. And that's what's going on in that scene is they're fixing to die because they're going to battle it out to the death. The score to Something Wicked This Way Comes is actually more interesting in its genesis because the score was supposed to be written by, I believe it's uh, Georges Delarue. I'm not good at French. I didn't do a lot of French. I only did like German stuff in college. So anyway, um, he composed a really long score, like stuff that was supposed to be used in the movie and then even stuff that was cut out of the movie. I think it was like 51 minutes or 54 minutes in total. And and he actually completed, you know, all of the score. And it was cut into a final version with his score and then it was screened for disney executives and they hated it because the whole movie with jack clayton's vision and the score was really dark Delarue's score is very dark. It has, they, he doesn't really use a lot of like light motifs, which are like little individual melodies that, 
you know, signify a person or an idea or something like that. Like, for example, Hedwig's theme comes up a lot in Harry Potter, but it's not always identified with Hedwig. It's also identified with, like, innocence and childlike wonder and, and good things, you know? And so Mr. Delarue doesn't really use that in in his score. Something we could this way comes. They've got just very jarring harmonics, and they're very abstract, and it's very visceral. And I mean, it definitely sets a dark tone for the movie. So much so that the Disney executives were like, "No, too dark. It needs to be a family movie." Even though they were trying to like reach to a more adult audience at the time, it was too adult. And so they basically delayed the entire project for a year pushed Jack Clayton aside, pushed Ray Bradbury aside too, and brought in somebody to like re-edit the film. And the person that they brought in to re-score the film was James Horner. He did the score for Apollo 13, Braveheart, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Aliens, Avatar, The Land Before Time, Jumanji, Casper, and he also did the score to Titanic. And he's also responsible for My Heart Will Go On. It was him and some other guy that wrote My Heart Will Go On for Celine Dion. So, not complaining. He knows what he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) But two of the things that he's known for is basing melodies on Celtic themes, which is very prevalent in Titanic. And he's also known for borrowing, which means you take like music ideas from famous composers or pieces and you incorporate them or hide them into your score so well that it sounds like it's an original thing, even though it's like based on an idea, which is not a new thing. A lot of, a lot of people have done it. A lot of people have done it in such an obvious way that they actually get sued for plagiarism. Uh, One of the most notable examples of borrowing is John Williams. He borrows a lot for like almost every score that he's ever done, but he is an expert at hiding it. Borrowing happens all the time. Some people are good at it. Some people are not so good. And James Horner is one of those people that I think is very good at it because the opening theme to Something Wicked This Way Comes is wonderful. Because not only does it have like this dark, mischievous aspect to it, but it's also kind of light. It has an airiness about it that doesn't make it extremely heavy. Like it still feels like family fare. The reason it sounds so familiar is because it's drawing from basically like three separate source materials. Uh, one, for example, I know, Justin, you had mentioned when you heard it, you thought immediately of the Imperial March from The Empire Strikes Back, mm-hmm. which makes sense. So it's possible that he, you know, drew that from John Williams' Imperial March. But it's even more possible because John Williams didn't just pull that out of his ass. He based that on Gustav Holst's Mars, the bringer of war from his planet suite. has that same marching tempo and very similar melody. But more importantly, some of the string effects and the tempo and pacing are more kin to two different pieces, which I don't think get referenced very often, but they're fantastic. So one of them is the fifth movement from Hector Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. And in the fifth movement, it's called The Witch's Sabbath. And it's basically about this guy who falls in love with a girl and then takes a whole bunch of opium, has like a giant opium nap because he doesn't take enough to actually kill him, and hallucinates that he kills this lady that he loves and then descends to hell. They both descend into hell and then she is part of a witch's Sabbath and is frolicking. So so the, the whole fifth movement has this very frolicky, mischievous sound.
and you can definitely hear that in the opening of Something Wicked This Way Comes. So it's a combination of that, and it's also clearly from the introduction of Mazorsky's Night on Bald Mountain. especially some of the string trills and things like that. And it also borrows a little bit in tone from uh, Camille Saint-Saëns' um, Dance Macabre. So there's at least four huge orchestral pieces that music people nerd out about all the time and they love uh, that this score is being based on and, and is borrowing like tone and instrumental color and possibly even melodies from. Okay, I think that just about does it. Thank you very much for being here today, Brandon. Thank you. It's good to have you back. <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls, email us at eerie.earfuls at gmail.com, visit us on the web at eerieearfuls, all one word, dot wordpress.com. You can subscribe to us on CastBox and iTunes. Give us a review, it helps other people find the show, and it lets us know how we're doing. Our theme music is Bobby Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also by Kevin McLeod. Find more music at incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. Hey, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) We're off to a great start. Uh, I'm so glad I'm back. Can't even do the intro. (laughs) 